You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. We'll look at just two verses this morning. But don't get your hopes up for a short sermon. (laughs) There's lots that go into these introductions. Unlike when we send emails or texts and we have to put in things just to make sure that it's going to be received well, Paul, when he writes a letter, usually at the beginning, he's laying out where he's going with the letter, what his intentions are for the letter. And so we want to take careful uh, time going through these first two verses. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. Paul, through the Holy Spirit, says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to start out this morning just asking a question. This is meant to make you think, and so I'll ask it, pause a little bit, and let you mull it over. Uh, Where are the most significant things happening in the world right now? Where are the most significant things happening in the world right now? Possibly you could be thinking of Wall Street and finances and are we on the brink of recession? What's going on with our economy? Maybe your mind went to politics and to to Washington, D.C. I'll speak about that later. Maybe Hollywood and and entertainment and uh, what is being produced on our televisions. Maybe technology or medicine. Did anybody actually think right now, this, what we're doing as a local body of an extension of Christ's church as being the most significant thing that's happening in the earth right now? Because it is. And Ephesians is going to make that very clear. In fact, a few years ago, when I was in fifth grade, I was a safety patrol. (laughs) I say a few years ago. Uh, It was quite a few years ago. And one of the perks of being a safety patrol is you got to go to Washington, D.C. Now, growing up in Florida, that was a long trip uh, to go from Florida to Washington, D.C. It was the farthest trip I've ever gone on. And I was really excited to get there and to see all the monuments and see all the statues and, and to go to all the museums and everything. But when I got there, I was really disappointed because everything that year was covered by scaffolding. Why? Because every so many years, in order to keep the majesty and the glory of these significant buildings in our nation's history, they have to restore them. And so the first time I went, like all of our pictures, it's like me with a bunch of scaffolding, right? And I'm like, look, this was the, the Washington Monument. This was the Lincoln Memorial. And, uh, and so it's, it was really interesting uh, to go, where, where was all this scaffolding? You, you couldn't see all the beauty. Well, really, what the local church is right now is scaffolding to the earth that Jesus is restoring through the gospel and will one day come, and it will be a beautiful picture of a restored and renewed creation that he's working actually through the local church. The local church is very important when it comes to um, Paul and his theology. It's the most important thing, again, that's happening in the earth right now. The Lord is bringing about new creation through the local church, and when Jesus returns, he will dwell with this church. In our culture, though, we tend to either over-personalize our Christianity, where we individualize it, right? Where we, 
We, we make sure that our faith is ours on our own. But the way that the Scripture talks about becoming a believer in Jesus, it's a both and. It is an individual act that happens to you, but you are saved to something else. You are saved from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light. You are saved to the local church, which is why as, immediately as you become a believer, the Holy Spirit comes to you and gives you giftings, not for yourself, but for others that can only be used through the local church. And so Paul uses the term for church nine times in the book of Ephesians. There's no other epistle as centered on the local church. And what's nice about this letter is there's no correction and there's no conflict going on. Paul is just giving us a manifesto of what the local church is. And he's writing it from prison. So you can imagine like some difficult time in your life that you may be going through uh, do you think about how to serve the kingdom of God and how to advance his glory, or do you just think about the difficult circumstance that you're going through? Paul is in jail, but he's like, man, let me write, and let me encourage churches, and let me help fan the flame of the gospel that is already taking hold and, and basically planting churches throughout East Asia. Let me encourage them. So he writes Ephesians and Colossians at the same time. And if you go through and read both books at the same time, you'll, you'll notice there's a lot of like, in fact, there's 35 verses that they share that are very similar. And in Colossians, the emphasis is really on Christ as the head of the church, the Christ of the church. But in Ephesians, he focuses on the church of the living Christ. And so the Bible describes the local church as being a place of life instead of a place of death, a place of unity and reconciliation instead of division and alienation. It describes it as being a place of righteousness instead of wickedness, by love and peace instead of hatred and strife, and by holy warfare against evil instead of compromise with it. And so what I want us to see in these first few verses, one is I want us to see that there is a gospel-centered author who is inspired by the Holy Spirit who writes to us. So notice, first word just says Paul, right? Very, very clear um, we know that the Apostle Paul, again, wrote many different letters to churches throughout um, the ancient Near East. And here we just start off with Paul. Uh, we know that Paul was radically saved in Acts chapter 9. He was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. I love to, to interact with people who are struggling with whether or not God can forgive them. Because when you struggle to to think through, can God really forgive me for what I've done? Does he really know all that I've done? And I just love to bring up Paul, because Paul had that same struggle. He struggled with why God would use him. And in fact, he would call himself the lowliest of all the saints. Why? Because Paul actually persecuted the church. He martyred Christians. He was attacking Jesus, which is why when Jesus stops him on the road to Damascus, he actually says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And yet, not only does God use or radically save Paul, but he uses him to do extraordinary things for his kingdom. So if you're a sinner, you're qualified to be used by God to do extraordinary things. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Again, Paul's apostleship was validated and confirmed by the original 12 apostles in Galatians chapter 2. 
And really, the apostle just mean, it means a sent one, right? It means that he was separated, and on the road to Damascus, Jesus said, you're going to be my, my witness to the Gentiles. You're going to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. And so he had a mission given to him by the Lord, which is why he says, an apostle by the will of God, not just an apostle because that's what I chose to be. Right? Paul doesn't have a personal agenda as he is planting churches and advancing the kingdom of God. He's doing this because that's what God had called him to do. So as he's writing to these churches in Ephesus, he is not doing so out of compulsion or, or because he's trying to control something. He's doing it because it's God's will. This is what he had called him to do. Again, he says to the Romans, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. In Galatians, he says, Paul, an apostle, not from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul is a gospel-centered author. He lived the gospel. He breathed the gospel. He preached and taught the gospel. He died because of the gospel. He was gospel-centered. But notice, there's also a gospel-centered audience. So, first PowerPoint, I'm already on PowerPoint uh, number two. So, PowerPoint point number one, gospel-centered audience. Point number two, a, gospel, or a gospel-centered author. Point number two, a gospel-centered audience. Who does he write to? He says, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. Now, Ephesus, uh, that term is missing from certain documents. As you go through and look at all the different documents that we have recovered that are copies of the New Testament, and what some authors have concluded is that meant that this was more of a generic circular letter that was supposed to go to many different churches. But whether it's there or not, there is lots to conclude that it did go to the church at Ephesus. And so he writes to the saints who are at Ephesus. Now, the term saint can be, used, can be misused by our culture and by other religions, right? So in the Roman Catholic Church, the term saint means someone who has done something really extraordinary that needs to be remembered. Uh, some of you maybe even use that home or use that in your home to describe someone who's really difficult to live with, right? Can, can any of you relate with that, right? Some of you, you, are, you would say that your spouse is a saint because they live with you, right? Uh, or that that family member is a saint because of the difficult people that they live with. None of you laughed with that, with the spouse thing. Um, Good, good on you, right? Because you don't want to go home and be like, oh, you laughed at that, why? <laughs> but yeah, so we use that term, it's almost like something done on the outside, but that's not how Paul is using it when he describes the believers at Ephesus. He calls them saints because that is their true identity that has only come about through the work of Jesus. They are saints not because of their own working, but because of someone else's work. Because Jesus has imputed his work on their behalf. And what is his work? He lived a righteous and holy life. He obeyed the scriptures, and yet he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. It also comes, again, more from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it's interesting that the nation of Israel was described this way, so I have it on the slide. Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 to 6. It speaks of God's choosing his people from among all the peoples of the earth uh, to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation. So he says, now if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, 
You will be my own possession out of all the people, peoples. All the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. And so it has this Old Testament um, background also of just this idea of being separate, being set apart for a purpose. And just as Israel was supposed to walk in the commands given to them and to be a light to the nations, the local church is to be a separate body. We are saints. We have been declared holy. We have been declared forgiven. We have been declared as now sons and daughters of the king. And what's really key is the Bible declares that over us. Is it a reality that we are actually walking in? Or are we trying to do something that God has already done through his son Jesus? Are we trying to earn a favor? We already have. If you're trying to earn favor, here's what happens. You wake up, you try, you fail, you try again, you fail, and then you just feel defeated, and then you stop. But if you understand that you wake up and and you're already loved more than you ever could love, be loved. That you're already treasured more than you could ever be treasured, and that you have more hope by believing in the gospel than you could ever hope for, then you walk in that reality, and you're free to walk in obedience to your heavenly Father. And so, isn't it interesting, though, he doesn't say uh, to a couple of saints. He says, to the saints at Ephesus. And in fact, that word saints is always found in the New Testament in the plural, which means that um, to become a believer in Jesus is never a personal, only a personal thing, is a corporate endeavor. It's never meant to be lived alone. And again, he's getting at your identity. Where do you get your significance from? What is it that defines who you are? Is it your status? Is it your name? Is it your income? Is it your abilities or talents? You know, when you sit on an airplane, what do you normally say to someone who sits next to you? Hi, I'm Josh, I'm, and then you describe what you do, right? Now, I love to do that because when you sit down next to someone and you tell somebody that you're a minister, usually you get all kind of different reactions. Uh, sometimes it's squirming, sometimes it's, you know, like um, confession time comes out on an airplane, right? I mean, all kind of different stuff can happen. So, But typically, we, we put our identity in what we do, not who we are. And the Bible says, again, who we are. We have to trust it. And so this is not something that we do. It's something that God declares. He says to the saints, but he also qualifies it. He says to the faithful saints, right? To the faithful saints who are in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. Faithful really has a layered meaning here. It it does mean just those who have faith, but it also means those who out of that faith walk in obedience. And so in other words, because we have a holy status, we should then live in holiness, right? When we think about Saving faith, what does it begin with? It begins with just this comprehension of what the gospel is, right? I'm a sinner, God's a savior. But it doesn't stop at that comprehension. That comprehension has to then lead to conviction of, I'm a sinner, and I need a savior. And from that comprehension to conviction, there must then come commitments, to show that 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 conviction has actually produced what it's supposed to produce, which is that saving 
faith. So comprehension should lead to conviction, should lead to then my commitment. And then this faithfulness comes to life where? In the context of the local church. Meaning I can't be a faithful believer and not regularly attend the local church. I can't. I can't obey the scripture and not attend church. I can't use my giftings and not attend the local church. This faithfulness comes to life in the context of the local church. And this Christian life is meant to be lived through community, which is what we call the local church. So he says, to the faithful saints, he says, in Christ Jesus. This is Paul's signature definition of what it means to be a believer. You are in Jesus. Christians are in Christ. Life in Christ is a key theme for the book of Ephesians. And again, it's Paul's favorite way of describing being a believer. Now, everyone, the Bible says also, is in Adam who sinned from the very beginning. The only way to transfer from being in Adam to in Christ is through faith in Jesus. That term in Christ is used 164 terms, 164 times in Paul's letter. It matters, right? That defines what it means to be a Christian. You are in Christ. But then he also says those who are at Ephesus. And this is where we struggle, right, with that balance. In fact, John Stott says it this way. He says many, many of our spiritual troubles come from a failure to remember that we are citizens of two kingdoms. We tend to either pursue Christ and withdraw from the world or become preoccupied with the world and forget that we are also in Christ. So notice he says to the saints who are at who are in Christ who are at Ephesus. In other words, we can't be so withdrawn from the world and so afraid of the world that we're not we're not engaging it with the gospel. But we can't be so involved in the world that we neglect our identity of being in Christ. Now when you think about Ephesus, and again this is a great segue to think about culture and Christianity and and, and where we're at in 2023. So Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. And it was filled with diversity. And it was filled with wickedness and paganism. And yet, the gospel flourished there. right? The, the temple of Diana or Artemis was there, which is just where wickedness was, I mean, just practiced day in and day out. People would come from all over the ancient Near East to, to go and to participate in that wickedness. Um, I mean, when we think about the United States, maybe you think about Sin City being something like Las Vegas or something, and like really, that had nothing when it comes to some of these ancient Near Eastern cities. What was going on at Ephesus was wicked. And yet Paul's like, hey, let's go plant a church there, right? And not only does he plant a church, he plants a church there that then begins to flourish and plants other churches there. In other words, it's not the culture that's stopping the gospel. It's believers not being faithful that's stopping the gospel. The gospel will flourish wherever it is preached. It doesn't mean it'll be easy, though. Paul stayed in Ephesus for three years. He endured great hardship, tears, and trials. Uh, it's warfare, right? Which is why he's going to end this book with the famous passage of putting on the whole armor, right? Isn't it interesting? Go home and read it. The whole armor of God, he says, to put on, and there's nothing for our backs. Why? Because we're not to run away. We're not to cower. We're to go forth with the gospel. And so here in this wicked 
Paganistic city, a church is planted that started a missional church planting movement. And, and these churches are mentioned in the book of Revelation. That's the letters that are sent to the seven letters in Revelation from Jesus. And so, isn't it interesting? In the book of Acts, it mentions Paul's start of the book of Ephesus. We have the book of Ephesians. Timothy was the pastor at Ephesus. So, first and second Timothy are sent to this church as well. And then in Revelation, they get a letter as well. This is a significant church. So, then it raises up even more the significance of this book itself and what is going on here. So we have a gospel-centered author, we have a gospel-centered audience, we have finally just a gospel-centered affirmation. Don't normally like to alliterate, uh, alliterate, but got it done this time, right? Three A's, right? So a gospel-centered affirmation. What does Paul affirm to the believers? He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Paul's writing from prison. Religious and political persecution are going on, but he's not complaining. Instead, he uses this as a ministry opportunity. God can take really any evil that happens in our culture and turn it on its head because he is sovereign and he always has been. The question is, do we trust him and actually live in that reality? Do we live in that reality that he is in control even when I'm suffering and going through something difficult? Paul never got over grace. He never got over that grace that he experienced when the Lord saved him. And so these words sum up for him what it means to be a Christian. And peace only comes through grace. Now you might think your greatest need this morning is not peace. Maybe it's coffee. Maybe it's some food. But your greatest need that every human being has is peace with God. And it's only when we have peace with God will we be able to have peace with each other and peace with the world. And that peace with God can only come if there is a, a holy atonement given on our behalf. It can only come through grace. Grace is the defining characteristic of what it means to be in the new covenant. And as Pastor Keith has already said, it's, it's a blend of Hebrew words from grace and loving kindness and what the term hesed is. Now, if you have the Jesus Storybook Bible, which if you don't, even as an adult, you should go get it, right? It's a kid's book, but it's like legit good theology for adults to read, right? In fact, you're going to grow in your faith if you've never read it before. And how the Jesus Storybook Bible describes hesed is something crazy like the never-ending, always and forever, uh, amazing love of God. Like it, it, You can't, in English, encapsulate how deep the word means. But I think, I think she does a good job in the Jesus Storybook Bible of giving us this long description. That's what grace is. It's the defining characteristic of the New Testament, uh, of the New Covenant. Uh, and Paul uses the word grace 95 times in his letters. It's through grace that we enter in and are enabled to walk in obedience. So maybe as a believer, you, you know, I, I know what grace is. It's by grace that I have been saved, but is it by grace that you are walking in Jesus? You don't get over grace. It, en, it en, enables you to walk in faithfulness. It is the grace of our Lord Jesus. You might say, look, I am so weak. I don't know that I can walk in that grace. Well, guess what? Again, Paul identifies with you, which is why he says, to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians. This is a slide I have for you as well. 
2 Corinthians chapter 2, or sorry, chapter 12, verse 9 says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient to you, for in for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore I will most gladly boast all the more about my weakness, so that Christ's power may reside in me. You might say I am weak again, I would just say you're qualified. You're qualified then to have the power of Jesus actually work through you to do things that you can't imagine that he could do through you. And not only is God ready to do that, he's pleased to do that. He's pleased to use our weaknesses, and his grace is sufficient for you when you are weak. Amen, right? Amen. Grace. What is really grace? So I like to find grace and mercy this way. Grace is getting something I do not deserve. Mercy is not getting something I do deserve, right? Grace is getting something I don't deserve. It's undeserved favor that leads to salvation. That is what grace is. None of us have earned the right to stand before God and, said, and say, I did it. In fact, even if we try to do that, what does the, the prophet Isaiah tell us? He says, it's like you're standing uh, before him with, with dirty rags saying, look at these, right? Now, having five kids, I've seen what that looks like, right? I've seen what dirty, dirty rags look like. I've seen what, uh, hey, look at how great this is. And it's like, no, it's not really that great, son. Sorry to tell you, right? But I can't say that, right? That would be a bad parent, right? So I have to say, that's awesome, right? Good for you. So not so with our father, right? It has to be holiness. And what we try to give him is not holiness. And so we need grace, but we also need peace. Now, again, when you think of peace, maybe you just think of quietness, right? That's honestly what I think of, right? And so anytime I can drive in the car and it's just me, woohoo, right? Do you know what your pastor does in the car by himself? Nothing. It's just quietness, right? Because I don't get that a lot, right? In fact, normally when I hear quietness at home, what does that mean? Uh-oh, something's wrong, right? Uh, and nine times out of ten, that is a, a good gut feeling, right? So, yeah, peace, though, is really, again, this, it's this extension of shalom, which is more than just, you know, quietness. It's, this, it's really completeness. It's soundness. It's, it's well-being. It's, it's a security that comes from the Lord. And it only comes by grace. We only have this peace through grace. And in fact, this is what, again, the Old Testament was preparing us for. When the new covenant comes, when something significant happens and changes, what will it look like? And this is what Ezekiel 37, 26, I have it as a slide. It says, I will make a covenant of what? Peace. And it will be a permanent covenant with them. I will establish and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary among them forever. See, it's really interesting. In the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, when we think about creation, right, we can think about God speaking and creating the days, right? And creating just, he begins by creating the outer things, and he begins to fill those things each and every day. And then on day six, what does he do? He creates Adam and Eve. He puts them then where? In the garden, which he says is a special place where he dwells, where his presence is. And he tells them, go fill the earth. Well, we know that they fail, right? In fact, they... they 
They have to leave that special place of the Garden of Eden. And yet here Jesus comes, lives in righteousness. He is the true and better Adam. And now because of his blood that was shed for us, we have the ability to have access to the Father. He says that he now is with his people, and now he's going to make all things new. And, and so and we're, he started off by creating all the outer things and then creating his temple. Now he's recreating all things through his temple, which is the local church. And one day he will come again and make all things new, including the heavens and the earth. This is the peace then that we can walk in and rest in, that he's in control, he's working, we're heading somewhere, there is a point to it all, and we can trust him and then walk in faithfulness. So he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses that term, Lord, the divine title to Jesus, showing that he is the exalted and transcendent one. He is the one to whom Christians now owe their devotion and worship to. He is the one to whom grace now flows so freely. So the big idea this morning is real simple. Just we have peace with God through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Walk in that reality. Walk in that reality. Don't walk in some faux reality that, that you are broken and can't be used, that you are so bad that, uh, that you're so untalented or ungifted that you're, you're useless, uh, or that uh, you have no hope in the future. No, all of that, the Bible declares, is wrong. You do have a hope. You do have an, a new identity if you are in Jesus. And maybe this morning you don't have peace, and it's because you don't know Jesus. You haven't submitted to his lordship. You haven't confessed your need for a savior. You're kind of like hanging out with God, like hoping to like uh, walk together into eternity without actually submitting to him and giving him your life. And that's not enough. You have to surrender. You have to have faith in Jesus. You have to confess your sin to him and ask him to save you. And he's faithful and just to do so. And he is waiting. And so as we walk through these next through chapters in Ephesians in the next coming weeks, we will see just, just this amazing thing that we're even talking about this morning. What is salvation? What is going on? Who is doing the work? What does it even look like? Paul graciously unravels this in the book of Ephesians. And so the question to ask this morning is, what's your next step then with Jesus? What's your next step? You might think, well, I do believe in Jesus. I didn't know that there was other steps. Well, your next step would be, again, to walk in faithfulness. Uh, maybe it's baptism. Maybe, again, you've confessed that he is Lord, but you haven't actually identified with him. That's what baptism is all about, is saying, look, I identify with Jesus. Uh, I identify uh, with, with the fact that I'm a sinner, that I need to be buried in that water because the wages of sin is death. But I identify that I put my faith in Jesus, that he's overcome death, and I want to be raised out of that water. Maybe it's membership. Maybe you're, you're a fan of West Wind, but not part of the family. Maybe it's time to just transition from being a fan to becoming part of the family. Whatever that next step is, walk in obedience this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel that it radically changes us. Lord, thank you that you are faithful even when we are not. Help us to walk in that faithfulness, Lord. By your grace, 
with your strength. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.